Gospel of John chapter 13, which you can find on page 10 of your worship folder. This is a story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Hear God's word to us. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And when he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them, with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you shall have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to, be, to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you a true, an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning um, that you would teach us what it means to love you, to love one another, and to be loved by you. All of us here um, have various thoughts about what it means that uh, you are a God of love. And I do pray this morning that you would teach us what it means to be loved by Jesus, to be loved by you, our Father. Wherever we find ourselves, whether far from you or perhaps um, listening in on church after having not been to church for years or perhaps skeptical or looking for something, Lord, we do pray this morning that you would meet us in your word and by your spirit and that you would teach us the meaning of Jesus' love. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. One of the things that happens in the wilderness is that all of life is stripped down to bare necessities. What do I need to survive? What is most essential in my life? What is 
Or what are those things that I cannot live without? And for me, this wilderness season has been an opportunity to reflect on what is uh, most important in my life. What are the things that matter the most? And what has become clear to me is that what is most important in my life are all of my primary relationships. My relationship with God, my relationship with my wife and with my children, with my friends, with this church community, with my neighborhood. These are all uh, primary relationships and I have thought more and more about what are my obligations of love to all these different people What are my responsibilities to all these loves that I have? It's easy, I think, during uh, good times when everything's going well to take relationships of our life for granted. But it's especially during these times of crisis and the times of difficulty that we realize how important and essential the various relationships and love, loves that we have are in our life. And we have a visceral sense of how important they are. Because to love and to be loved is an essential to human survival. No one can survive long without love. And I think arguably one of the biggest challenges of this whole pandemic is the way that it has challenged love can't be together. We can't gather as we normally do. We can't touch one another. Everything takes more work. It's hard to connect. And even for those of us who are fortunate enough not to be alone at home, but with our families, and sometimes it's, you know, we get on our nerves or we feel stressed, and it makes our relationships at home difficult. What does it mean, friends, to love one another through distress? What does it mean to love one another through distress? When in the wilderness times in our life, we need to return to the most elementary truths that anchor us. Many of you know the very well-known story about Vince Lombardi, the famous coach of the Green Bay Packers. When the, in the 1961, in the summer, when the Packers came to the first day of preseason training camp, Vince Lombardi holds up a football and he says to his, his uh, team, he says, this is a football. <laughs> you know this, right? This is a football, right? This is a very basic, you know, this is Packer lore here. Um, it's helpful to understand the backstory a little bit. In 1961, the, the previous season, the Packers had gone to the Super Bowl against the Philadelphia Eagles, and they had blown a fourth quarter lead to lose, right? So this was a team at the top of their game, and they lost by an inch. And when Lombardi steps in front of him and he holds up this football and says, this is a football, he wasn't trying to insult the intelligence of his players, But what he was trying to remind them of is what is most basic to the game, right? The Packers actually went on to win the the Super Bowl that year. But I think we're in a this is a football moment with life. For me, I think that's definitely been the case on so many levels around prayer, 
around relationships, around being a father or a husband or your pastor. I don't feel like I have any great insight into this pandemic in terms of what it means for our lives or where it's going or what life will look like. But one thing that has become clear to me is that this is an opportunity for us to return to the basics, to the fundamentals. And the most fundamental fundamental of all fundamentals is love. That's what we heard in our sacred reading just a, a moment ago, where Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away, give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Without love, what does it all amount to? Nothing. And Jesus washing the defeat of his disciples is very much a, this is a football moment. But instead of a football, he grabs a towel. He says, this is love. This is love. Gentlemen, this is love. I want to draw your attention to our text, the first couple of verses, and help you understand the scene in which Jesus does this, because I think it's important. This foot washing comes at a distressing time in the ministry of Jesus. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, right? Jesus knew his hour was coming. He saw his death coming. This cross was staring him down. He loved them, that is his disciples, to the end. And during the supper, the devil had already put in this heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. And so what's overshadowing this whole foot washing are a couple incidents. One, the fact that Jesus now has a cross clearly in mind. He will be arrested within, you know, a week or sooner, actually. And he, Judas, the betrayer, the betrayer of love, is sitting right there in the midst. And his presence looms throughout this whole story. And it is precisely in this distressing moment in time that Jesus gathers his disciples around and he grabs the towel and he teaches them about the meaning of love. One of the great themes of the Gospel of John is love. In fact, John, the writer, calls himself the beloved. Jesus is beloved. This is, in the Gospel of John, the most famous verse in all the Bible that, if you know any Bible verse, it is this. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus wants to teach his disciples about what it means to love one another. And in verse 34, which comes um, a little bit after some of the text, there's some more story in there. There's a summary, though, really, which caps the end of which the story begins, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, our chief and fundamental calling as followers of Jesus is to love one another. And the love of God and the love of neighbor go together. The way that we practically love God is by loving one another. First John, which is one of the letters of John, is clear that you can't say you love God and hate your neighbor. Loving our neighbor is how we practically love God. Loving one another is the way in which God's love becomes manifest. It becomes visible. It becomes real in the world. But again, I think it's, sermons on the love of God are difficult in our, in our culture. They're hard to, as I was preparing this sermon, I struggled because love is such a broad and generic category for us. I think not many people would say they, if they don't, not many people would uh, deny that God is love. If they believe in God, this God is a loving God, right? Everybody believes that God is love. And I think everyone believes, for the most part, that you should love your neighbor. And I think if you were to ask most people, are you a loving person? I think most people would probably say, yes, I am a loving person. And yet, the state of the world speaks for itself, right? (laughs) There's a lot of hate and there's a lot of conflict. What sets the Christian understanding of love apart from all other loves is the content of love. The love of God is not a generalized category. It's not a generic category in which we fill in what we think love means. Love has a very definite and specific content. And that content is the person of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. He said, listen, if you want to know what love is, look at me. Look at me. Look at what I'm about to do. Again, uh, verse 13 here, or 12 or 13. Do you understand what I've done to you? He asks after he washes their feet. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have truly, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. This morning, I'm not going to talk very much about what it means or how we love one another. Instead, I simply want to talk to you about what it means to be loved by God. This is the key, and that's, this is really the presupposition, the thing that's underneath everything else, all the love commands. If we are to understand what it means to love our neighbor, to love one another, we have to understand what it means to love God, what it means to be lo- not just to love God, but to be loved by God, to be a beloved. What does it mean to be a beloved? God's love for us, friends, is more primary than any other love in our life. And it's so basic that we, we, I think we just take it for granted. We just assume it's there. But the love of God always leaks out of our lives. You know what I mean by that? It's always leaking out of our lives unless we are continually filling it up. 
filling up his love. When it comes to us loving one another, friends, and I, I say this, and I just, the, the most important gift you could ever give another person in your life is your own love for God. To just love them directly, will you, you will not be able to love them as fully as if you were to love God more than them. Friends, the greatest gift that we have to offer our spouses, our children, our friends, our family is our own love for God. But that all depends upon understanding what it means for us to be God's beloved. And so I just want to go through three things here that we learn about what it means for us to be loved by Jesus. Because even as Jesus gives us a model and an example, he asks this question. He says, do you understand what I've done to you? See, to be loved by God is not simply uh, like a state of affairs or the fact that God is favorably disposed towards us. No, to be loved by God is for Jesus to do something to you. So I want to look at three things that we learn about Jesus' love for us. Um, Jesus' love subverts, it cleanses, and it radicalizes. It subverts, it cleanses, and it radicalizes. Um, the first thing to understand about this, the love of Jesus is just how subversive it is. Look at our story again. And this really has to do with getting at the heart and meaning of the foot washing. So Jesus rose from the supper and he laid aside his outer garments. And he took the towel and he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, what's going on here? And why is it that Peter gets so upset when Jesus goes to try to wash his feet? Um, foot washing was a common thing in the ancient world. Uh, people generally didn't have closed in enclosed shoes, and they're walking around in dirt and dust, and their shoes are grimy, or their feet are grimy. I mean, feet are kind of gross now. We don't generally touch each other's feet, but... Um, it's not just a stinky sock that we're talking about. And so foot washing was a common thing when you go into the house. It'd be kind of like taking your shoes off. Um, a servant would wash a person's feet or you'd wash your own feet. But foot washing is what you need to understand. It is the job of slaves and servants and people of low estate. It is not something that the teacher does. It is not something that a person of high status does. There's a lot of dirt on feet. There's feces, animal feces and human feces on feet. Poop. That's right, children. I have all the children's attention now. I just said poop. And here you have Jesus bending down to wash. To di he disrobes, he grabs a towel, and he starts cleaning the dirt and the grime and the poop off of his disciples' feet. And Peter's objection to Jesus doing this is, it's not just that he's like, no, 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 I should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this, Lord. But there is a sense in which um, he doesn't want to try to imagine Jesus cleaning him, cleaning poop off his feet, cleaning dirt off his feet. It's almost like, Jesus, I'm losing respect for you now. Put your garments back on. Do not do this. And what Jesus has done through this very simple act is to upend the social order of the ancient world. 
it's interesting, you know, scholars are always looking for different examples in literature uh, for comparison with biblical texts. There's no example in the in Greco-Roman world of a person of high society and status like somebody like Jesus washing people's feet. He subverts the social order and even those who are beneficiaries of his washing, which is his disciples, are deeply uncomfortable by this. Jesus' love is destabilizing. See, the thing that sets apart uh, Jesus' love from our loves and worldly loves is that our loves are always function properly within the boundaries and limits of the established order and arrangement of things. We really like the idea of love as long as it upholds the order, the order of things that we've grown accustomed to. But when that love begins to sort of undermine the world that we've designed for ourselves, the world that serves us, it is very uncomfortable. And what Jesus does here is he comes into our world and he starts loving in ways that just subvert and destabilize and make us uncomfortable. And friends, that's one of the ways that you know you've become God's beloved, is that he begins to turn things over in your life. He begins to push love you beyond the boundaries that you've set up. He begins to challenge those sacred, those sacred boundaries. His love calls all things into question. I think that the limits for most of us, um, if we're honest, we, we believe we're loving people, but we have a lot of boundaries for our love. We have a lot of boundaries. And one of those is just our sense of personal worth and dignity. If we feel like that is threatened or insulted or undermined in any way, um, love is not required. All of a sudden, it's justice or what is right and our love is often bound up with our perceptions of people and whether they're worthy of our love or not, whether they deserve our love or not. So any love that risks me and my emotional sense of well-being or personal worth or dignity is not something that could be expected of me. But it's a good thing that God does not love us that way. Um, Jesus' foot washing points clearly to the cross. Jesus, in a sense, is giving his disciples a preview of the meaning of his death. And that's why he says, he says, what am I doing, or what, what I am doing, <clears throat> what I am doing you will not understand. But afterwards you will understand. What does he mean, afterwards you will understand? Again, he's pointing to the cross. He says, like, when you look through the resurrection and through the cross, back to this foot washing, it'll finally make sense to you what I actually did. The actual meaning of the cross. Because what the cross was is, it was a, it was a foot washing on a cosmic scale. The cross is Jesus washing the filth and the grime and pollution that we've created in this world off of our feet. He descends into the sewer 
He is, and it's important, friends, to remember, who is this we're talking about here? He is the one through whom all things were created. He did not create this mess, and yet he descends and lowers himself to clean it up. The psalmist in Psalm 104 describes God, which applies to Jesus. It says that he's clothed in splendor and majesty, covered with light as a garment. And here what we have is Jesus taking off his garment, laying aside his robe, his cloak, his rights, his power, his dignity, to take up the towel of a slave. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians, he says, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being, for, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian faith. Don't let this truth become dull in your hearts through familiarity to become domesticated by the orders of this world. Don't let this love be neutralized by not giving it the attention that it needs. Friends, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it was not just a photo op. It wasn't like what politicians do when they, they go to small-town America and, and, and drink beer with you know, blue-collar workers. Jesus is not acting a part he actually goes all the way. He disrobes completely, literally. He is naked on the cross. We need to reflect on this subversive love. Let it linger. Let it linger in your hearts. Let it be on your lips with song. Sing it, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Okay, so... To be Jesus' beloved is to experience his subversive love. It is to experience a love that turns our world upside down. But the second point about Jesus loving is that it is a cleaning or a cleansing love. The love of God is something that you cannot really truly know deeply in your life unless it changes you. Again, I think we prefer the idea of a God that loves us at a distance a God that gives us our space unless we need his help. A love that that's <clears throat> knows its limits, its boundaries. But as uh, Jesus says to Peter, when he came to Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what am I doing? What I am doing, you do not understand, but afterwards you will. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If you, I cannot wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is very clear. If you want me, if you want to be my beloved, you have to let me wash you. You have to let me clean you. And I can't, this gets at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. You know, we, again, we like the idea of a God that loves us, but one that loves us at a distance. But accepting, accepting the love of God into our lives, is, it's a humbling thing. I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where you've been 
in a difficult financial position or you've needed help and you have to ask somebody for help, it is humbling. And God loves, God's love for us is a humbling love, right? And I think when we think about spiritual life, we think, well, I need to get myself cleaned up to go to God, right? <laughs> I need to kind of get my life in order to go back to church. I want to sort of, you know, get ready and then I go back. But that's not how it works, friends. That's not what it means to be Jesus' beloved. The only way that Jesus will let you come to him is as dirty and filthy. And any attempts, your attempts to clean yourself up ultimately are futile without his washing of you. It's like a stain, right? Like, like in a garment of your favorite shirt. I always have these grease stains on my, on my shirts because I cook a lot. And I'll just wash it and wash it and wash it. And that grease stain just does not come out. And it's the same with our lives. It's like that guilt or that shame or that, that thing we did and we're washing and we're washing and we're washing. And it will not come out. You can scrub all you want, friends, but you can't wash that out. Only Jesus can wash it out. That's why we, you know, that's why we sing about nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? The, the idea of his blood, his blood cleanses. It is, it is actually the, 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 only, the only fluid, the only solution that actually can wipe away sin. And so to receive God's love, to be his beloved, there's, there's a twofold humbling that takes place, I think. A double humiliation, if you will. The first is this, is the first humiliation is God's humiliation. It is Jesus disrobing himself on the cross to wash us free from our sins. But the second humiliation involves us accepting that reality that we need his cleansing love in our lives. Friends, there is no... There is no sin that can possibly disqualify you from his love. There is no stain that he cannot get out, except one, which would be a refusal to see that you need to be washed, a refusal to see or to take seriously that you really need forgiveness. As Jesus says to Peter, if I do not wash me, you have no part of me. Here's the, here's the beautiful news of the gospel, right? Jesus accepts us as we are. He says, come as you are. Come as you are. Dirty, filthy, let me wash you. But here's the other piece of that, though. Jesus says, come as you are. But he will not let you stay as you are. This is very important. Another way we refuse the washing is say, I come, I get washed initially, but I don't need any more washing. I'm just a dirty person. No. Jesus says, come as you are, but you, you can't stay as you are. I want you to see that it is Jesus' disrobing, his condescending love that ultimately is what changes us as people. Not our attempts at washing ourselves. One of my favorite reflections on this love of God comes from the great reformer Martin Luther and his Heidelberg Disputation. He talks about the difference between human love and God's love. And, and Luther puts it this way. He says, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Think about this for a minute. So when we love another person, 
when we love a thing, we love it because of something in it that we find pleasing. It is beautiful. It is attractive. You know, if it's a person, they're, they're kind or they're funny or they're good looking, right? There's something in the object that we find pleasing, which we love. But God's love is completely different from human loves. Because when God loves something, he sees it. It's not, it's not what's in the object that's pleasing, but his act of loving makes it pleasing. Again, Luther says, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing. The love of God, which lives in man, loves sinners and evil persons and fools and weaklings in order to make them righteous and good and wise and strong. And to be Jesus' beloved is to have him dwelling in you, cleaning you, making you righteous and good and wise and loving and able to love others as he loves us. See, God's love in our life makes us lovable. It creates us, creates love in us. It creates that which is beautiful. Okay. So the love of Jesus in our life is as subversive and it's cleansing. And finally, it is radicalizing. Think about how radical and extreme Jesus' love here is and how his love was on the cross. It is not moderate. It is not modest. It is not partial. It is not respectable. And it calls forth responses that are not modest and respectable and partial, but radical and extreme. But here, I think in the modern world, we're very, um, we're, very, we're very afraid of extremism, religious extremism. We're very afraid of any spirituality or any faith commitments that would radicalize people in such a way that it goes against the order of things, that it disrupts the social order. And honestly, there's very good reasons for this because oftentimes when people find religion or they find God, they get radical about their faith. It usually means that other people suffer that don't share their experience, that don't share their zeal, that don't share their perspective. But the extreme love of Jesus does not... Here's the thing. This is, again, the difference between God's love and Christianity at a fundamental level and other spiritualities and religions is that Jesus' love does not inflict suffering on others. It bears suffering for others. This is the true meaning of Christian love. It is a love that is willing to suffer for the good of the other. Even when the other is an enemy. Even when the other does not deserve it. Even when the other has nothing desirable to offer, nothing good to give. Even when the other, and in the case of Judas, betrays love. And being the beloved of Jesus, it's radicalizing. Friends, we only know what love is when we look to how he loved us. We only know what love is and have the capacity to love others when we know and experience his love for us. The entirety of loving others depends on being God's beloved. I want to direct your attention and close to the very last, the very first sentence of this passage. 
When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. That word there is telos in the Greek, which means a goal or end. He loved them to the end. I, I, I just love that phrase that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. What does that mean? It means that his love cannot and did not fail to reach completion, perfection. It means his love lacks nothing. It means that he did not stop loving his disciples even when they failed to love him back. It means that he loved them with everything he had, the whole of what he had. He held nothing back in his love. It means that he loved them practically in the end, he loved them to death. Not their death, but his death. Jesus was extreme in his love. He loved his disciples in the extreme. I think that's the best way to translate that verse. His love was radical. It was extreme. It was fanatical. It was unreasonable. Friends, that is Jesus' love for you. <laughs> All those words. Radical, extreme, fanatical, unreasonable. He loves you in the extreme. He loved you to death, his own death. So brothers and sisters, as you sojourn through this wilderness season, you need to know what it means to be the beloved son and daughter of the Father and of the Son. It is to have the love of God that goes ahead of you. It is to have the love of God behind you and beneath you and above you. He goes before us in his love. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love. I pray that we would have a deep sense of how much you loved us in Jesus. That it would not be a generic uh, sort of warm feeling, but we would sense the costliness of his love for us. And it would lead us to worship you more and to trust you more during this difficult, distressing season of life. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.